We are very glad to have such a robust beginning to the British Studies seminar this year. This comes close to a, uh, a record number of people who have been at the very first meeting of the uh, uh, seminar, and I suppose that the reason is because of George Scott Christian. Everyone is looking forward to his uh, uh, talk, and I will actually read a couple of lines, and I'll read them because as I understand it, these talks are recorded. And unless it's helpful for people who are listening to the lectures to have a little bit of detail that otherwise wouldn't go into an introduction. So let me say that it's George Scott Christian, and it's Scott to distinguish him from his father, George Christian, the advisor to LBJ, and so on. Uh, George himself holds virtually a unique uh, place in the British Studies roster because of his UT degrees, a BA in Plan 2, 1982, a JD, 1984, an MA in 1997, and a PhD in 2000. Uh, he is a practicing lawyer as well as a teacher in English history and literature. Uh, his scholarly work on the British novel has appeared in the Dickens Studies Annual and the Thomas Hardy Journal. Uh, he's served as a legislative assistant to a Texas state senator, and he represents clients in the Texas state legislature. And like his mother, uh, Joanne Christian, who was a member of British Studies from the very beginning, in 1975 until a few years ago before her death, uh, George also is a very devoted uh, member of British Studies. George Christian. All right. Well, thank you, Roger, for a generous and, and mostly accurate um, introduction. Uh, the part about my mother is, is absolutely correct. Um, it is an honor to be here, as it always is. It's just an honor to be a member of the seminar, to get to speak to the seminar, and I've done that on occasion over many years, is, is really sort of the, the something I could not have ever imagined as a young UT student or as growing up hearing about the seminar from my mother, who used to sit on that corner of the table right where Tom Cable is, um, and to actually appear and to kind of take her place in a sense is really quite touching. and. I, I can never kind of get over her not being there. Um, it's, it's quite some, it's quite a time warp kind of a thing. Um, I'm not sure why Roger asked me to speak about this subject because my knowledge of Scotland is really good up to about 1800. <laughs> um, not so much after that. Um, and nobody knows anything about Brexit. I'm convinced now totally that Everybody is clueless about it, and we'll talk a little about kind of what we think might be happening, but your guess is as good as mine, and I really hope that maybe this is more of a discussion about this situation than it is me telling you anything about it. Um, so let me tell you kind of how I'm going to approach this. Um, you may recall in 2014, I... It, if you don't recall, don't worry. I barely recall things that long ago. I gave the last um, lecture at British Studies for the 2013-2014 term. And the subject of that was 
wither Scotland. Uh, that was uh, just prior to the independence referendum that was held later in the year. And I spoke about you know, what might happen um, if the Scots either did or did not vote in favor of independence. And I kind of reviewed what I thought to be kind of a recurrence in Scottish and, and English relations of periods of devolution and periods of consolidation and kind of looked at it historically that way. And this was one of my last slides. And it was that guy who has dropped into complete oblivion, as far as I can tell. And I asked the question, do we have another constitutional crisis in Anglo-Scottish relations around the corner? And if you'll hit that next button, hopefully it'll work. And at that time, there was a news report, very freshly minted, about David Cameron telling Tory MPs and his troublesome backbenchers that he was planning to bring a referendum to the ballot on uh, the exit from the EU question. And you see here, um, he said, the sooner I can deliver on our commitment of renegotiation and a referendum, the better. And so I brought this up as going, well, if this happens, What's going to happen next? Next slide. Well, <laughs> it happened. And that's kind of a funny cartoon. Next slide, hopefully. There was a pretty rapid response from the Scottish government uh, at the time, even before um, this was proposed for the ballot, where Alex Salmon, who was the First Minister of Scotland at the time, the leader of the Scottish National Party, he said five and a quarter million people ceasing to be EU citizens against their will is more than absurd. There is simply no legal basis in the EU treaties for any such proposition, and it is against the founding principles of the European Union. Now, what Alex Salmon didn't say at the time was there's this thing called parliamentary sovereignty that kind of overrides that, but we'll talk about that in a minute. So move the videotape. Okay, since I gave that talk in 2014, two referenda have been held, as, as everyone knows. So the first one, which the next 2014, as we all know, about 55-45, Scots voted to remain. And there I just put up a little chart, you probably can't see it, of kind of the uh, demographic breakdown of that vote. And if you want to see it, I'll send it to you. But it, it generally shows that um, yes voters, um, except in this, um, if they were born in Scotland, they were more likely to vote yes than remain. If they were men, they were more likely to vote yes than women to, uh, I mean to um, leave uh, the union. And I thought that was just an interesting. It's a close, it's a much closer vote, I think, than people really think it was. Um, and, and there is a substantial number of uh, remain uh, and leave voters that are still there. This issue still polls about the same way, by the way. It hadn't changed a whole lot since then. In 2016, in the uh, EU exit referendum, 62% of Scots voted to remain in the EU. And this vote was pretty generally universal across Scotland in all 
uh, constituencies in Scotland. It was particularly strong across the urban belt of Scotland. Um, Leave got more support in the borders area and the rural areas of Scotland. It looked a little like England, actually, where the rural areas went very strong for Leave, whereas the more urban <coughs> cosmopolitan areas went pretty strong for Remain. And that's kind of what happened in Scotland. But as you could see by the yellow, all of Scotland voted to Remain. So uh, there really is a different mandate if you look at it this way, and it, that's debated, obviously, is how you look at this vote. The mandate was pretty strong from the Scots across the board in all kind of demographic categories, young, old, men, women, uh, to remain in the EU. All right. Okay. The day after the EU vote, the Brexit vote, things started to happen immediately. As you all may know, in May 2016, there was an election um, in which SMP stood on the proposition that if, if there is a significant and material change in circumstances that prevailed in 2014, such as Scotland being taken out of the EU against its will, then the SMP, the Scottish government, would propose a new independence referendum, that this particular right contingency, which did occur, and it had not occurred as of the issuance of this manifesto, would trigger another independence referendum request by the Scottish government. We'll talk about, again, I'll remind you what has to happen for there actually to be a constitutional referendum in a minute. And as you see here, last year, the First Minister, now Nicola Sturgeon, said she believed that it would be wrong for Scotland to be taken down a path that it has no control over, regardless of the consequences for our economy, for our society, for our place in the world, for our very sense of who we are as a country. That would be wrong, and therefore my judgment is that we should have that choice. The policy of SNP has been pretty clear from, from the outset, that once Brexit was determined, by referendum that Scotland was going, at least from the SNP's perspective, the ruling party uh, in the Scottish government, that at some point in time, a, a referendum on independence would be mooted again. Now, since Nicola Sturgeon said that, you know, there have been some going back and forth within SNP, within the Scottish government on the wisdom of doing it. Um, particularly in the face of these uh, opinion polls that are not showing much change, you know, in the kind of overall attitude of the voters towards independence right now. Okay, now I'm going to kind of get into what I really want to talk about here. It's not really the politics of, uh, you know, in Scotland or the politics between Scotland and England, even though I am going to talk a little about that. Um, but I, I want to talk to you about, are there really constitutional issues involved here? And if so, what are they and how serious are they? Because this, I think, is where the battlefield really, really is. And if you are following, you know, Brexit generally, this is, this is one of the, I think, most significant issues in Brexit, just aside from 
how they're going to get out. Are they going to have a hard Brexit? Are they going to have a soft Brexit? Are they going to have some, you know, intermediate Brexit that I guess is, I don't know, just right, maybe. I don't know. But whatever happens with the negotiations between the EU and um, the UK, it, that's not going to resolve these constitutional questions that Brexit now has created that, that really existed before Brexit, but that Brexit, Brexit now, because of the uncertainty around it and the differential economic effect it's likely to have on the devolved parts of the UK, particularly in Scotland, right, it's created a whole, a whole new level, I think, of scrutiny of the constitutional position of devolved governments in the UK and has brought now back into question certainly the sincerity of the UK government in its desire to continue to devolve powers to um, the other governments in the UK and whether or not we might be actually seeing a reactionary move by the Conservative Party to reclaim powers that has already devolved. And that's another outcome that I think people have begun to talk about recently, that this could come back uh, as a power play by which Parliament, the UK government, kind of gathers up its powers again to legislate for the whole UK. And of course, this isn't just a Scottish issue, as you know, it's a Welsh issue, a Northern Irish issue. And um, we'll, we'll get into what those are. I wanted to put this up here because it might have been a while since you actually read the Treaty of Union between Scotland and England. Uh, has anybody read that reason? It was on your list this summer, anybody? Well, I went back and read it just because I didn't know what I was gonna say today. So I said, well, it's about the Constitution and uh, the Treaty of Union is, is actually a constitutional provision, right? It's one of the parts of this thing called the English Constitution that Everybody kind of knows what it is, but nobody can point to it like it doesn't exist in any kind of codified form or anything, right? And so when we talk about it, it it's kind of like, I don't know, God. You know, it, it's distant, it's remote, it doesn't talk back to you. Um, and so what does the Treaty of Union have to say about this? Because once this was ratified in 1707, by the two parliaments of England and Scotland, at that time a sovereign nation, right, with a sovereign parliament, obviously had authority to actually do this. You know, what were the terms of that agreement and what became part of the Constitution? Well, this is kind of the preamble to it. And it says, right, as you can see, that the two <coughs> kingdoms on this date forever after be united into one kingdom by the name of Great Britain, right? And then it goes on into flags and stuff like that. The, the flags are really important, right, aren't they? I went back just for grins to look at what the Anglo-Irish Treaty of Union says about this. It follows this same pattern. And it also has the stuff about flags. And I was like, great. What the Irish Treaty doesn't have that the um, Scottish one does is a lot of language about no popery and Protestants, <laughs> which is a really interesting distinction, um, actually. And then it has all these like details about the duties that are going to be paid on various things. The treaty is quite interesting, actually, to look at because it 
has sort of broad kinds of principles in it like that, but it also has real specific legislation. Um, and and I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to think about that because we're, we're going to talk about some of these issues in terms of the kinds of powers that they're fighting about, right? Okay, next document. Okay, so that's kind of the basis of the kind of constitutional position of the current UK with respect to England and Scotland. They're bound by this treaty, right, that, mo that everyone agrees was legitimate, right? But that's not the whole story. There are many other parts, right, of the constitutional picture, right? These are all, right, specific statutes and other conventions that govern the question right, of the constitutional relations of these two entities, right? And nobody's even quite sure what's, what kind of entity Scotland really is. Um, and, you know, that's a question that continues, you know, historians can't agree on that, um, which I find particularly interesting. It's just a very elusive kind of concept. Um, so I wanted to give you a sense of the kinds of um, considerations, right, that lawyers in the UK and lawyers in Scotland and judges are being asked to look at and consider in litigation that's ongoing right now between the Scottish government and the UK government, and that all of these particular laws and are implicated here, right? This is an enormously complex question. Now, everybody knows, right, the, the first thing I'll talk a little about is the Scotland Act of 1998, right? This is the act that was passed by the UK government, by Parliament, to devolve power to Scotland and to reestablish a Scottish Parliament, right, with certain devolved powers. And what this... I went back and read this law. It's an immensely long law. Um, it's a huge statute. It's quite detailed in some respects and it's quite vague in other respects. It basically, what it does, it reserves certain powers to, right, UK government. So the first thing it does, it says we're gonna have a Scottish Parliament, it's gonna be elected in this fashion, it goes through a lot of the process that you have to go through to actually constitute Parliament. But then the meat of the statute is, who's going to do what? What does the UK government keep? What do we give to Scotland? Most of the statute is devoted to what's kept by the UK government, what's reserved. What is actually granted or devolved right, is much, much more limited. And it's also riddled with exceptions. And then, of course, there's a provision that after you've gone through all of these reserved and devolved powers, it says, but the UK Parliament reserves the right to legislate for the whole United Kingdom. What Parliament giveth, Parliament taketh away in the same statute. And we're going to look at the problem that that's causing right now. Along with the Scotland Act of 1998, there is something called the Sewell Convention. Does anybody know what this is? Has anybody heard of the Sewell Convention? I hadn't heard of it. I was doing all this reading going, and I saw this Sewell Convention. I went, what the hell's the Sewell Convention? 
Well, I'll tell you what it is because it's become really important and nobody knows what it is. This is so typical of British law generally and the way the English run things that there are these really important things that happen that aren't written down. You don't know where they are. Somebody said something in a meeting and suddenly it became a constitutional convention. And you're going, how did this happen? Okay, I'm just going to tell you what it is. It's real boring, it may sound, but you got to know this to kind of understand what's going on. So I'm going to read this part. So I know it's not good just to read your notes, but um, bear with me just for a little short paragraph here. The Sewell Convention refers to a statement, a statement, okay, made by Lord Sewell in the House of Lords regarding the Scotland Bill. And this was in debate on the bill beginning in 1997, carried over into 1998. This was actually on a date, July 21st, 1998. And here's what Lord Sewell said, and this is his exact words in, in quotation marks. We would expect a convention to be established that Westminster would not normally legislate with regard to devolved matters in Scotland without the consent of the Scottish Parliament. He said that in a debate. We would expect that. Okay, that doesn't really sound like that would rise to the level of a, like a binding kind of a agreement to do that or anything. But this became the Sewell Convention. It was embodied in a memorandum understanding between the government, the UK government, and the devolved executives of Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland which was concluded in 1999. So it became kind of part of an MOU, right? Which is kind of like a contract. We're gonna kind of deal with each other this way. Governments do this all the time. It's a little weird what the legal status of an MOU actually is, if anybody can enforce one against another government, but it is like a contract. The theory of the convention, the Sewell Convention, is that you, the UK Parliament's sovereignty and power to legislate for the whole UK, which nobody really questions here, right? That's kind of bedrock law, if you will. Um, has not been changed by devolution, right? There's nothing in the Scotland Act or the Acts for Northern Ireland or Wales that has in any way changed parliamentary sovereignty, but that the, quote, spirit, spirit of devolution implies that political power lies with the Scottish government and that its consent should be obtained prior to legislating in areas of devolved competence. The Sewell Convention also applies when the UK Parliament varies the legislative competence of the Scottish Parliament or the executive competence of Scottish ministers. Okay, So the Sewell Convention is a fairly pervasive and broad, you know, it's a far-reaching idea. And the underlying principle is that while Parliament retains sovereignty to legislate for the whole UK, it won't do that under most conditions. There's still that word normally in there, right? It, without asking the Scottish government to give it the political consent that would presumably make 
the relations between the two entities more pleasant. Well, as we'll see here in a minute, the pleasantries are out the window here. <laughs> Nobody is being pleasant about this right now. I don't know if anybody's gone and listened to any debates in Parliament between the SNP members and the government lately. Uh, things have gotten to be, um, I, I'm not sure, an all-time low in the feelings um, between Scotland and England or the hard feelings, but they're, they're pretty seriously close. I, it's hard, I mean, we have, we're used to Republicans and Democrats fighting each other, but we're not used to Texas trying to kill New York. Um, it, and it really, it, it's become quite entertaining um, to watch if you're outside of it. But, but I think part of what's going on here is the political ramifications of Brexit, which were poorly understood in advance, obviously. Nobody understood. They thought they were going to vote Remain, right? So now what? Um, but I, I think the political ramifications have gotten a little out of hand um, and will continue to do so. so since 2000, uh, 1998 and the Sewell Convention, there have been two more um, Scotland bills that have further refined and further devolved certain powers to Scotland. One of those was in 2012. And the one in 2016 which was really intended to forestall a Scottish revolt over Brexit, which is why they did it, or they thought they were doing it, that bill actually, actually enshrines the Sewell Convention in law. Just the way I read it, just what Lord Sewell said is in the statute. So it's still got that same aspirational kind of language and, but it now has statutory effect, right? So in some sense, the Sewell Convention is binding. Now, what does that mean? Well, that's what this case is about. And I wanna talk about this because I think we're gonna see a number of cases that are currently being litigated on the scope of the Sewell Convention and whether it can have any actual like real effect if it's justiciable in a way that it can be enforced against anybody. Well, this case, R. Miller v. Secretary of State for Exiting the European Union from last year, 2017. And let me just say what the Supreme Court was asked to decide and what they did decide. Three things. There are three holdings, if you will, in this case. The first one, although the removal of the EU constraints on competence implied by Brexit would alter the competence of the devolved institutions unless new legislative constraints were imposed, the UK's relations with the EU are a reserved matter, and the devolved legislatures have no competence in relation to the withdrawal from the EU. Okay, that sounds pretty clear, right? EU is, is a reserved matter, Right, it's parliament, we have parliamentary sovereignty. There's no question that the Sewell Convention can force the UK parliament to get the consent of the devolved legislatures for anything related to Brexit, okay? That's the position, and that's certainly the position of the UK government. That is not still, right, an accepted position by the government of Scotland. The second holding in the case, there is no legal requirement to obtain the consent of the devolved legislatures 
before notification of leaving the EU was given, was given, right? So one of the things Scotland argued was, you didn't tell us you were going to do this, right? And it involved powers that have been devolved upon us, and we want some say in how you're going to handle that. Well, they got the big back of the hand from the UK government on that, as, as they have really since the vote. Right, there's been very little real discussion going between the devolved legislatures, somewhat more with Wales, you know, on these kinds of issues. The third, well, the third thing the judges said that I think is really important, and I'm going to quote from the opinion because this is judges being political. I know Judge Hudspeth said judges would never be political, but. Um, they are, right? And, but, and listen to what they said. They said, judges, therefore, are neither the parents nor the guardians of political conventions. Isn't that interesting language? Parents are guardians of political conventions. They're merely observers. As such, they can recognize the operation of a political convention in the context of deciding a legal question but they cannot give legal rulings on its operation or scope because those matters are determined within the political world. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> we, oh, we can give an opinion if it, is, it has to do with a legal question, but wouldn't it always? Isn't the very legal question we're asking is whether that Sewell Convention that's in the Scotland Act of 2016 has application to trenching on the devolved powers of, I, I thought that was the legal question that was being litigated in this case. Well, they go on to say, as if that were not enough, in reaching this conclusion, we do not underestimate the importance of constitutional conventions. <laughs> Some of which play a fundamental role in the operation of our constitution. Some do. <laughs> Some, but not others. Like which ones? <laughs> the Sewell Convention has an important role in facilitating harmonious relationships between the UK Parliament and the Doyle legislatures. Well, it ain't working. <laughs> but the policing of its scope and the manner of its operation does not lie within the constitutional remit of the judiciary, which is to protect the rule of law. Okay, so we have, I think, if I'm understanding this properly, which I don't, you know, I, I in no way represent that I am. You have law and politics. There's some realm of law and some realm of politics, and judges know the line between them when they see it, but they can't tell you what it is. <laughs> it depends on what the situation is and what kind of heat they're getting and from whom, right? I mean, this, this, is the, this is a very, very impressive punt of an issue for the future because they, they, they did not establish a standard for determining when and when not, right? To take account of, a of an apparently very important constitutional convention that is so important that it's actually in the Constitution. It's in the law, right? This is not a convention that's uncodified. And so, you know, the fact that they're going like this on that demonstrates to me not that the law is settled and that they don't have a problem, but that they really do have a problem. 
and they realize this decision is not going to put the problem to rest, right? It's going to keep going. Because once again, it's a political problem that continues to have legal implications, right? And so even though the upshot of this case seems to be that, well, the Sewell Convention's not really justiciable, we can't really like make a decision about that, and courts really can't enforce that against the UK government. Well, that's, that's the outcome of that decision, I think. So that's the real effect of it. But it does not appear really to have given us any clarity about the law, about the law or when the Sewell Convention would actually be operative. If it's not a dead letter after this case, and they were careful to say that it's not because apparently harmonious relations are like constitutionally important, or they wouldn't have said so, but if, they're, if they refuse to enforce it in order to promote harmonious relations, it, it does seem to leave the door open for future problems here, uh, it seems to me. Okay, here we are then. We're in a position now, after this case in 2017, where we seem to go, okay, Parliament can legislate for everybody. That's a general rule. We seem all to agree to that. That the Sewell Convention doesn't, require Parliament to ask anybody's permission that wants to legislate in areas of devolved competence, which we've already determined are, is every area, whether it's devolved or not, right? And we can't really go to court to force anybody to do anything. Certainly you can't force Parliament to do it, and the judges are not willing to right, cross that line. And so here we are, the UK Parliament, right, should be now okay. We're good, we, we know what our power is, we can exercise it, we don't have to ask these pesky Scots or pesky Northern Irish what to do. And so full speed ahead, we're gonna negotiate with the EU, we're gonna get a good Brexit deal, if, right? You know, whatever it is, um, we don't have it yet. And Katie, bar the door, we're, we're good. Well, guess what happened? Here comes 2018 around, things are not going well for the Conservative Party. It's having fairly serious leadership problems. It's got fairly serious backbench revolt going on against any give in the position, you know, on Brexit. And you got a prime minister who called an election. That was one of the more brilliant calculations. Um, you know, I, I got to thinking when I was looking at this, if, if this outfit had been in charge in 1940, <laughs> this wouldn't be a problem. It wouldn't be a problem. I mean, this, uh, anyway, I won't get off on just my comment, you know, my feeling about it. I mean, it, is, it really is kind of just a parade of, of horribles. Like, you know, you cannot believe they, they go from one enormous blunder to the next that they've managed the public perception of this horribly, right? And, and, and there's enough to go around. That goes around the Scottish government. It goes all around. It's all over all of them, right? Here comes 2018, right? Okay. Let me tell you what happens in Scotland in the spring of 2018 while we were all coming to the British Studies Seminar and enjoying all the lectures and teaching our classes and having a good time. There was all this stuff hitting the fan, 
over there and we'd see it in the paper and stuff and go, that's quaint. Um, in May of, last, of this year, just a few months ago, the Scottish Parliament voted by a fairly significant majority of 93 to 30, which is a fairly big supermajority, to reject the government, the UK government's Brexit legislation. You all saw this, right? This was a pretty big deal, or seemed to be. And, but why'd they do that? Well, the argument was the deal, the Brexit bill of the government legislated in Scotland's sole areas of competence. Wait, I thought we just resolved this. Didn't we just say that the Sewell Convention doesn't apply, they don't have to ask, they have part Why did these MPs do this? The law was settled. What's going on? Well, the First Minister, SNP leader, she has just taken the position, I don't care what that court said. I'm a political leader. <laughs> that doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm not only the leader of the government, I'm the leader of my party. And you know, SNP in Scotland is by pretty long shot the biggest party, right? It's got, you know, a fairly hefty majority in the Scottish Parliament. It's lost a little recently but the polls are showing it's back up again. I think all of this sort of going up and down, you know, through these um, tergiversations is kind of, right, lifting SNP again. Um, she says Scottish Parliament should approve any legislation that impinges on devolved competency, which gives it a veto power, right? Well, and you know what? Theresa May has said about that, right? We can't let Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland get in our way here and have any kind of veto power over the Brexit deal itself. Now, what's interesting, too, prior to the vote, right, to reject the government's Brexit bill, the 93 to 30 vote, the Scottish Parliament had already passed a contingency bill legislation that said if there is no deal, right, how are we going to handle Brexit? How is Scotland going to handle Brexit? That bill got passed, right, earlier in the spring and is out there on the books, at least for now. That bill has been challenged in the Supreme Court by the UK government and here we go again. We're having an argument in a court over whether that bill, whether the Scottish government has the power to do that. And that decision has not been made yet. That is still pending. And so we don't know yet, I, I think I probably do know how that court might rule on this, that wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, no, we can't have conflicting bills out there about Brexit, we gotta have one. And, and they'll find a way probably to try to pour oil on the political waters. But I don't think, there's no evidence that the Scottish government is going to accept that either, right? So 
what we have now is kind of the difference between a political crisis and a legal, <laughs> a legal crisis. We all think we know what the law probably is, but we're also in a political posture where it might not matter that much what the law is. That's trouble. You don't like to have that happen, do we? <laughs> Particularly in a government of laws that we think the Anglo-American kind of system is, that everyone pretty much takes what a court says right as the law of the land, that we accept that, that we defer to it even if we don't like it, that we really don't decide there is another tribunal that we can appeal to. But I think right now, feelings are so hard on both sides of this debate that we may be creating a political crisis that even though it doesn't itself threaten the Constitution like in a legal sense, doesn't change the constitutional principles, it may create conditions where those might be changed. Now, is it, is it possible that, now we've seen this story before, haven't we? In a little bit different context, a little different time, a little different level of violence, certainly, in the Irish case. How, how did Ireland get out of the Union? A treaty, right? We all know this. Okay, that sounds good. Who is the treaty between? There was no sovereign Irish government that was recognized by anybody. Certainly not by Parliament or the Prime Minister or anybody else. In fact, Lloyd George said, I ain't talking to y'all in any kind of capacity that recognizes you as sovereign or plenipotentiary in any way. How do you make a treaty with guys <laughs> from Ireland? Have you met the Irish? <laughs> <laughs> I don't I'd have sure done it. Y'all y'all go off on it. You've convinced us, yeah. But there was never really a resolution of the issue, and I don't think many people talked about it. How's it constitutional, right? Well, it got ratified when Parliament ratified the treaty, right? Oh, parliamentary sovereignty. Parliament acted. It passed a law to ratify the treaty. Therefore, it cured whatever irregularities existed in the actual conclusion of the treaty. So it was a backdoor way, right, of getting the result and kind of going around the constitutional issue of the legitimacy of the treaty to begin with. They had to cure that, which they did, probably very wisely. Now, what I'm thinking here is what if the S&P Right, continues down this line. We don't know this. We don't know this, right? We don't know really much about the outcome. We don't know what kind of Brexit it's going to be. We have really no really good idea of what the economic consequences of this will be. The Scottish government has issued its own report on the effect of Brexit on its economy. It's pretty severe. It's uh, in 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 terms of the comparative effects on the other parts of the UK, it's worse. There are reasons for that. It's the particular kinds of products that Scotland exports and makes. 
The UK government has been notoriously slippery about trying about identifying what it thinks the economic effects of Brexit are going to be. Hasn't really released anything definitive on that and has kept a lot of it confidential, so we're not really sure what the UK government really thinks. The only thing that they seem to be saying on a consistent basis, and you'll hear David Mundell, who's the Scottish Secretary, stand up and say this kind of as a mantra. There's a, they, there are not arguments here, by the way. If you listen to the debates in Parliament, they're not really, they're not making arguments to each other. They're making slogans. It's just like our own political debate now, right? And nobody's listening. They've gotten to a point where all they do is kind of repeat, repeat, repeat. And the things they repeat are on the Scottish side, right? The Scottish vote on the Brexit referendum should be respected. That the Scottish people are sovereign. They voted to stay and you can't take us out this way it, without at least asking us what we think and involving us in, right, the negotiations. And there are variations in that position. Some are harder, some are softer. On the other side, <coughs> the UK government's mantra argument is Scotland voted to remain in the UK in 2014. And it doesn't matter how Scots feel about Brexit, because they already voted to stay in the UK, and the UK is leaving Europe, and that's the deal, right? The mantra response to that is, but you didn't tell us you were going to leave the EU, and in fact, right, you represented that one of the reasons people should vote to remain was that you get to stay in the EU. <laughs> And so it's the old bait and switch, right? And you got Nigel Farage going over there going, hey, that's right, we did that. <laughs> Any of you heard the term project fear? Has everybody heard that? That's kind of, yeah, you have. Well, project fear originated in the independence referendum. It was to try to frighten people to vote against independence based on, oh my God, you're going to lose the pound and your pensions are going to go away and, you know, my God, you know, the U.S. will take you over or whatever, right? Well, the Project Fear effort has been revived for Brexit in this kind of very strange way. The conservatives are actually doing it again to try to leverage, right, their own hardliners into making a deal. <laughs> By, in some people's opinions, overblowing the effect of Brexit on the English economy, then thereby forcing the backbenchers to a more reasonable position. It's a very strange intra-party situation. It's not talking to the Labor Party. And it's sure not talking to any of the devolved parties either. It's, it's in the Conservative Party. Now a larger concern I think here is that the question of the union and the continuation of the union is becoming much more strongly identified with the Conservative Party. And you'll see this 
both with the relatively small number of Scottish conservatives who are in Parliament and in uh, the Scottish Parliament, but also it's definitely true south of the Tweed, it, where the conservatives now are the Unionist Party. And labor is somewhere out there maybe, you know, willing to do more devolution or, you know, there are variations in the labor position. And then you have the, you know, the radical fringe, the SNP nationalists. And SNP is now being termed a nationalist party, which is a pejorative way of talking about the SNP. Even though I always go, well, it is called the Scottish National Party. <laughs> They've never hidden the fact that they're a national party, right? But now, oh my God, nationalism, right? Everybody's going, oh, nationalism, bad, bad. That's what's happening in Europe. That's what's happening in the US. So you're getting this kind of weird Trump effect where the S&P is actually being accused of, of being part of this nativist kind of rise in Europe when really what the Scots are saying is, no, we want to we stay in Europe. <laughs> we're, we, we're not the ones who wanted to leave. Oh, you know, you're this nativist. Na Wait a minute, no, that's the English who are that way. You see what's happening? The parties are yanking the tail of this thing and kind of trying to hang on to it as it's get, trying to fight like crazy to get away from them. And it's become entirely a party issue. And so what Theresa May is trying to do is how do I get out of it? I do, th I do give her some credit for trying to do that. And in fact, she was up in Scotland a couple weeks ago making nice with Nicola Sturgeon and the UK government invested a bunch of money, you know, in Scottish universities and job, you know, economic development and stuff. I mean, you know, to show, you know, we're not the big assholes you think we are, <laughs> right? I mean, it was a real, like, gesture to, I think, try to smooth some of this over. Well, it's not working. Um, on July 4th of this year, while we were all over here eating hot dogs and watching fireworks, there was a debate in Parliament. It was Opposition Day in Parliament. And this is really worth your time if you're at all interested in the issue. Starts at about 3.45 in the afternoon. Long day. It goes from like 10 in the morning to like, you know, 10 at night. I mean, it was long sitting like they love to do. And it's Opposition Day. And the question for Opposition Day, which was mooted by the SNP, members of the British Parliament, was Scottish claim of right. I was going, oh, Paul, you'll love this. This is 1689 style. <laughs> Scottish claim of right, that the Scottish people are sovereign. That's the question. They're going to debate that. Well, for the next, I don't know, four or five hours, there's this debate. And it's, it's not a heavily attended debate, which many of the MPs note. You should see this. It is like a kindergarten class. These people are no more interested in what each other has to say. They are, you know, they're telling each other to sit down and shut up. They're, you're just going, the whole decorum of the House of Commons, what is going on here? And the speaker's up there trying to, you know, <laughs> humorously kind of manage this and mediate it, it is a complete disaster area. And you're going, this is what the greatest deliberative body in the world. And they can't even hold a reasonable kind of discussion about the, you know, the nature of kind of political sovereignty. 
right? They weren't discussing whether Parliament is sovereign. They were discussing whether Scottish people, right, who expressed an opinion in a referendum in a lawful manner, a fairly strong opinion, whether they ought to be listened to or not, and in what manner, what procedure they should be. And it devolved, you know, it, and, and ultimately, guess what? How did they vote? They voted yes, Scottish people are sovereign. Great. So we got, I mean, you just go, they, all this sound and fury, and they all go, aye. <laughs> and you're just going, you know, what was that all about? It's, I mean, it's funny in a way, but it's also a problem. And however you stand on the issue, whether you like small nations, whether you like, you know, self-determination at some smaller level than the entire UK, or whether you don't, this is, gonna, this is not going away. And that, that's my major kind of leave for you, is that this is going to go on. It's going to be litigated, certainly, either way. But I do think that eventually there will be another Scottish referendum on independence, eventually. It might not be any time real soon. Because I think what's going to happen if we do get a hard Brexit and, you know, you never know what rabbits they're going to pull out of the hat at the last minute on this. And they might get a reasonable deal or they might get a kind of a bridge arrangement. You know, Scotland's position has been we want to be in the free trade. We want to be in the trade and customs union. That's been the Scottish position consistently, either within the UK or outside the UK. And Michael Russell, uh, who's the Scottish Brexit secretary, I've actually met him at a British Scholars Conference in Edinburgh a few years ago. He's running around Europe right now saying, you know, there is gonna be a referendum and Scotland, and, and he is representing that the EU will allow Scotland in as a member state once it's a state that can join. I mean, he's saying that today. And which indicates to me, you know, one, he's putting a very brave face on a kind of a difficult situation. I don't know if he really believes that. But don't forget, this is the SMP's party manifesto to do this. And they haven't changed that. And in fact, they're doubling down. And eventually, they're going to have to do it if they want to hold on to any kind of credibility in Scotland or legitimacy as a party. And I think what you're going to see is Brexit's going to happen. It's going to happen in a messy divorce manner. All divorces are messy. I don't know why David Cameron didn't think of this. It's going to be a mess. It's going to have some unforeseen economic consequences. Even though Scotland exports probably four times more products to the UK as it does to Europe, it still exports about a fifth of its entire GDP to Europe. You can't take that. The English market is not gonna expand by 20% to accept all the Scottish exports that are at risk. It's not. And if you lose even some part of that, it is gonna cause massive unemployment in Scotland. People are gonna leave the country. It's gonna kill, the, it's gonna hurt the tax base. It's gonna hurt the services the Scots want which is the NHS, the universities, the education system. These things are important to the Scots. I mean, SMP, that's what they run on. 
That's why they want these powers, right? And so this is going to be a problem. And I think if things go real hard on Scotland out of Brexit, you're going to see a referendum probably sooner than later in the next few years. Don't know how it will come out. But um, we, we, in our lifetime, we could see the end of this union. I think it's a real possibility. Maybe not a likelihood. But uh, after 2014, I was going, well, it won't happen again another for another generation at least. I don't think that anymore. So with that, I'm going to stop. It's just my opinion. <laughs>